It's an interesting thing when you see that the how of ministry is in many ways determined by the who, when, and where of culture. It's important to note, it doesn't mean that everything in ministry is determined by the who, when, and where of culture. There are biblical marks of a church. There are, there are things that should be true in a boma in Kenya where a group of believers meet and worship and should be true in a, on, on a group of people who meet in, 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 a, in an affluent suburb outside of Vancouver. And so there are universal principles, universal biblical constants that should be true in every time and every place. But also, we have to recognize that there's going to be a place and a need to know a context so we can reach a context. Now, I want you to hear this because it's important, because I'm struck by the fact that this is controversial. And I think that this is controversial because of the bad examples of such, right? Uh, Dean Gilliland, in his book, The uh, The Word Among Us, said it this way. I'm quoting from his book. It says, contextualization is a delicate enterprise if there ever was one. The evangelist or the mission strategist, the evangelist or the pastor, we'll say, stands on a razor edge. To fall off to either side has terrible consequences. Slip to the left and you end up into syncretism. In other words, the gospel itself is mixed with something else. And basically you concoct another faith that's not the genuine faith. But you slip to the right and you end up in obscurantism. The root word is obscure. You obscure the gospel, so attached to your conventional ways of teaching and practicing the faith that you veil its truth and power through very different eyes. I would say the greater problem with Southern Baptists is obscurantism. Is we have become accustomed to a certain way of doing church. If you're looking for a seat, you have to come all the way up the front. Please come on up quickly. Just come right up to the front. The seats are here and here. Here and here. Uh, the, the obscurantism is our greater issue. Now, it's not the only issue. There are churches in our denomination outside that we would say, whoa, 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 you're doing too much to engage the culture. But I want to look with you at four things, that'll, or three things real quickly that will help us. Acts chapter 14, we see a picture of a place that something remarkable happens here at a place called, uh, well, let me go to Acts 13, at a place called Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. It says this in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 16. It says, Then Paul stood up and mentioned, uh, with a motion with his hand, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, uh, Israel, chose our ancestors, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt. And he goes on and on and on and on. Please don't stop at the back. Just walk in and walk up to the front. There are no seats in the back. You'll have to come up here and here. But don't stop in the back. You're blocking other people from coming in. Um, here in Acts chapter 13, we get a remarkable picture that Paul preaches to the Jews of Pisidian Antioch, and he announces to them the good news of the gospel by beginning with Jewish history. Now, that's going to be important. Remember that. He begins with Jewish history, and he says, men of Athens, I see that you are, excuse me, uh, men, men, the touch, men of Israel at the Pisidian Antioch, he begins with Jewish history. Now he goes, and he, he goes through 40 years. He put up with them in the wilderness, verse 18. He asked for a king in verse 21. It goes on and on. From this man's descendants, verse 23, according to the promise, God brought a Savior, Jesus, to Israel. Once you hear this, Paul enters into their community story and points them to Jesus. Don't miss this. He uses their history as a bridge across which to communicate the gospel. You say, Ed, but that's because they're Jews, and so the Jewish history is intended, it's a pedagogos, to bring us to God. The law points us to God, yes, but that's not the totality of what he does. Look with me to Acts 14, just a little bit down down the passage here. 
In Acts chapter 14, it says this. In Lystra, this is Acts 14, verse 8, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, who had never walked, heard Paul speaking. So they pray, he's healed. In verse 11, it says, the crowd saw what Paul had done, raised their voices, and said, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. They start worshiping them like Barnabas and Zeus, uh, Barnabas like Zeus and Paul as Hermes, and they get upset. Paul and, Paul, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas are just shocked that they would do this, so they tear their clothes, and they begin, Paul begins a message. Listen to what he says. He says, men, why are you doing these things? If you wouldn't mind, don't stop at the back. Come all the way in so people coming in from the outside can come in as well. Just grab seats. The seats are up here and up here. That's what we got left. Just keep coming in and don't block the doors. It says this. It says, they, they cried out, thinking they were gods. Paul then says, men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you. We're proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless and living things. Now, the people at Lystra weren't Jews. They weren't the sophisticated Athenians. They were, I don't know, they were, they, they, they were, they were bumpkins. Um, and, and, and so they were kind of on the edge of the empire. Lystra wasn't near, uh, you know, and so, so, so that, that's sort of the way people, if you look at some of the literature that day, they're described in disparaging terms, people from Lystra. And so, and so, but here's what he does. They may worship the sky and the sun and the crops and the rain. Paul preaches about them, again, uses where he is as a bridge to communicate the unchanging gospel. Here's what he says. He says, you should turn from these worthless things. Paul knew what they were focused on. You should turn from these worthless things. Turn from these worthless things and do what? It says, instead, he lists them to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. So he said, the things you worship, turn from them to the living God. But notice, just as Paul did at Lystra, at Pisidian Antioch, he does again at Lystra. He takes their context and communicates Christ to them. Now, I don't want to say that he uses the culture to present the gospel, but he looks for cultural bridges across which the culture, uh, the gospel can travel. Acts 17 is the last one. And Acts chapter 17 is my, it's one of my favorite passages because it's, it's kind of the highlight of missiological engagement in the, in the scriptures. Now, what happens is people look and they look at this, this incredible speech Paul does when he says, uh, men of Athens, and I found this altar with an unknown God. But I, I don't think you could jump right there. I want you in your city and in your community to think differently. Because if you go back to the beginning at verse in Acts chapter 17, you see some, many things are sort of leading up to what happens by the time Paul gets there. For example, look with me, if you look nothing else, look down at Acts 17, verse 18. This may be one of the most important verses you've read past in your whole life. Here's what it is. Acts 17, 18, I mean, Acts 17, 16 says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him because the city was full of idols. Listen, you can't love a city if you don't know a city. And one of the ways you know a city is you know its idols. Now, don't think that idols are just something that were there in ancient Athens. First uh, John reminds us, says, little children, guard yourself from idols. The most frequent thing you are commanded to be careful about in the Bible is not sexual morality. It's not lying. It's not stealing. The most frequent command is to guard yourselves or to watch yourselves to be caught up in idolatry. Idolatry is a sin of your life. It's a sin of my life. And one of the things you've got to do if you want to know a city is to wander into the city and to see and to know its idols. So Paul's spirit is, is, is troubled within him, verse 16 says. And it goes on, and he talks about, he starts these conversations. And finally, in verse 19, they brought him to the Areopagus. He said, maybe learn of this new teaching. It's strange to us. And 
And then verse 21 maybe describes the news shows that we see. Now all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent their time doing was nothing else than hearing and telling something new. And then it says this in verse 22. And this is what I want to encourage you to, to know your city so you can love your city, so you can preach Christ to your city. Then it says this, then Paul stood up in the middle of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. He knew his context. Now I'll tell you, as a church planner, having planted in Buffalo, our issue was not religion, it was immorality and trapped in poverty and the immorality that often was emerging from a, a, a situation of deep poverty. Well, now I live in Nashville, and the, the, it's the Baptist Vatican, right? The issue there, everyone I know has been saved. I mean, everyone I know has been saved, and, and, and yet they don't know what that word means. They know they did something when they were eight, but they don't know what that word means. And so, so I live in a place where I can say, you're extremely religious. And Paul goes on and says, I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I, I even found an altar to which is inscribed to an unknown God. So Paul knew the context well enough to know what they worshiped, the idols that troubled him and enslaved them so he could preach the gospel to them. Now, here's what I want you to hear. I believe that one of the great challenges that Southern Baptists have had, and I'm making it very Southern Baptist specific, is encapsulated in the Encyclopedia of Southern Baptists 1958 edition. How many of you read that Encyclopedia of Southern Baptists, right? right. <laughs> I have, and uh, um, it's actually pretty fascinating. Um, and there's an article in there called The Westward Expansion of Southern Baptists. It's a rather fascinating article. Here's what it says. It says, Southern Baptists found that they could not fit in well. Let's paraphrase. Could not fit in well in the churches of the West. So basically, they created their own churches that felt like they were back home. Pretty remarkable thing. They did. And so what happened is, is that, as a matter of fact, uh, Cal Guy. Some of you may, may know Cal Guy or may have known Cal Guy. He went to be with the Lord not just a few years ago. Uh, the first class I ever taught at a graduate level, I co-taught with Cal Guy. He's one of my heroes, long-term missions professor at Southwestern. He explained how when he was up helping plant a church in Chicago, how they did it when he was a kid. So here's what we would do. We would go to the local grocery store, the one grocery store that sold grits. And we would wait for somebody to buy grits. And we'd go up and say to them, we're starting a Southern Baptist church right on the outside of Chicago. And he said that as a cautionary tale. Where I planted my first church in Buffalo, New York, there was a church that was planted like that. It was a, a plant had moved from Alabama, and they had relocated and given the people the opportunity to move up to north of Buffalo, New York. And it was a wonderful church. They loved Jesus. They did everything. It felt, it, it felt like a piece of home. But then they all retired, and they all went home, and the church died. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't want your church to feel like a piece of home. I want your church to feel like a piece of heaven. And there's a difference between the two. So you've got to know your community. And in many ways, I want you to hear this, in many ways you're going to reflect your community. Some people get mad at that. No, the church is worldly enough. I'm not talking about in morality, but I am talking about in cultural engagement. You don't want people walking into your church and saying, well, these people, they're just strangers and they don't look or think anything like us. You want, you, what you want them to walk in and say, those people are radically different than us, but they look like us. They sing like us. Maybe they even work with us. Who are these strangers, these sojourners, and these aliens? So I want you to take a few moments. We're going to kind of go through. I'm going to introduce my team uh, along here with me, and we're going to kind of walk through 
what it would look like to have a process to know your community. It might be a small city, a small town. You can do that. It might be a big city. We recently did a study of Austin. Some of you are from Austin. We did a study, a city study of Austin. But, but at the end of the day, I think the tools and the principles that you'll find in the next few minutes will help you if you're an association or a state convention or, or just a, a regional gathering. Uh, our, our experience has been generally work with multi-denominational settings to do research on their cities or their communities or their small towns. But I want you to listen. Philip's going to share a little more and then Scott as well. And then I'll come back at the end kind of finish it off and maybe take some questions. I'm not sure the time. I'm going to step off and see if they've adjusted the time at all because of the late start this morning. So I'm going to introduce to you uh, first Philip Nation. Philip Nation is the Vice President of LifeWay Research. Philip works in uh, in our field helping us with things like Transformational Church, uh, Transformational Discipleship. He's the co-author of Transformational Discipleship. He's actually the co-editor of a new study Bible that he and I have out together called The Mission of God. Uh, study Bible, and uh, we wrote a book called Compelled Together, been friends a long time, and we've worked together for a long time, and still are friends a long time, which is good. I think it's a good sign. And so Philip's going to share, uh, and then Scott is uh, the director and vice president, but he leads Lifeway Research on the day-to-day operation. He's going to talk to us about the brass tacks of what it means. I'm going to introduce him more in just a second, but what it means to learn and to know your city. So Philip, let me turn it over to you, All right. I'm going to go step out and check and see what we need to do on time Thank wise. you. Well, I just want to, I want you to take a look at this quote. This is from a retired four-star general of the U.S. Army where he said, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. Uh, and, and that's probably some of, the, some of the reason why you're planting a church is because you like change. Some of you that are engaged in, in, in missionary activity that presses outside of the bounds is because you like that. You are by nature maybe a little bit more of a rogue and a rebel. And so as, as Ed talks about from a biblical perspective of how we see Jonah reject the need to love a city and Paul accept it and, and then move into those cities and wander through and begin to understand the idols and the systems and the people and the tribes and the affinity groups that are there, I, I got to thinking about, you know, what are some of the, the six principles or six factors uh, that, that we have to adapt ministry to. And so let me, let me just quickly give those to you uh, of six different ideas of what we've got to adapt our ministry to. And I'll just put them up here on the screen three at a time. The first is vitality of the church. Now, if you're engaged in church planting, there is a, there's a temptation that we face that we rush into town thinking that somehow we're the first ones planting the gospel there. Or we're planting this church because nobody else is really telling people the truth of the gospel. And we don't intend to offend, and we don't intend to think that way, but there is a temptation that we do that. And so I would encourage you that in whatever kind of ministry you're engaged with, whether you are in an established church, and you guys have been growing, and you've been strong for a long time, or you're revitalizing a church, or you're planting a brand new one, that you take time to gauge the vitality of the ministry that's been going on there other, already. I had the opportunity um, to get to know the guy who, who first uh, introduced the idea to many of us that we need to learn where God is at work and join him in it, uh, Henry Blackaby. I, I, I got to serve on staff down at First Baptist Jonesboro in South Metro Atlanta for about five years where Henry and Marilyn are uh, members. And so I got to be up close and personal with the guy who wrote that, but what was the fascinating thing was to watch him live it out. Because Henry is one of those guys, he travels all over the world, wherever he goes, tens of thousands of people gather to hear him speak. You know, he he goes over to Africa, and then suddenly there's 25,000 people in a stadium to hear him speak, or he, he travels around the states, and he writes these books, and millions of people read them. 
And, and so he, he is able to write from a very high level, but I got to watch him do it on a very localized level where he was trying to engage local business leaders in South Metro Atlanta, and he still does so in a monthly Bible study to try to help them to understand that God is at work in a pretty broad scope and so we need to understand the vitality of everything that God is doing. And so whether we're planting a church and we think, well, we just showed up with the gospel, and maybe in some places you are. You are the one who's planting the gospel there for the first time. But make sure that you're learning how God has been at work and how God has been plowing up those fields maybe for decades before we got there. But then also the receptivity of the people. We are great a lot of times at learning the demographics but are we really paying attention to the receptivity of folks? It's not just what has been their religious history, but also where are they today? What are they going to be receptive to? What are going to be those key factors that is going to help them move from knowing that religion is important to some people to religious ideals becoming important to them to really wanting to have an in-depth conversation about the gospel? And for some people, it is going to come all the way, it's going to come completely through personal one-on-one, long-term relationships that are, it's going to feel like it takes forever. For other tribes and affinity groups within a city, they're going to have a, they're going to have a clustered receptivity that is going to, that's going to kind of take you unaware, maybe. And it could be because they've already established relationships. There was one area of ministry, that's geographic area that I served in, that when I moved in to this one particular neighborhood, nobody attended church. Nobody seemed to have a religious history. You had to kind of get back to their grandparents for it. And yet all of them were clustered together in very tight relationships already because they were all transplants from other cities. None of them were native to that city. And so they were already looking for community. And so it was an easy place for me to build a bridge for the gospel because I found their point of receptivity. But then also it's the mobilization of the church. Um, We have been through the phases. We still get stuck in the rut of trying to be the greatest show in the city. We want to be the greatest show on earth. And we keep having to trump ourselves week after week after week that the music was great this week. It's got to be even better next week. The, the kids' program was great this week. It's got to be even better next week. VBS was fantastic this year. It's got to be even better next year. And, and so it is very easy to get into that showmanship mentality even when you're a very young church because you're, you're there planting something that you think is new that is somewhat novel to the city. And so you've got to make sure that even in the midst of planting something that is new and maybe novel to the city, and you've got a group of people that you love dearly, that you're doing community with, that you keep them mobilized in their relationships at work and in the coffee shops and at the Little League ball fields and in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And so it's, it's also the mobilization. Here are the other three ideas that I want you to grab a hold of, and then Ed is going to introduce uh, our colleague Scott McConnell. As you adapt ministry, it's the coordination for the gospel. Uh, one of the great things about a conference like this, <coughs> excuse me, is that you have the opportunity to meet everybody else that lives in your city. And we know those men and women, those other leaders by face and by name, but do we really know them? Have we really dug in relationships with them so that we are coordinating our work together? There is no reason why your church has to do everything on its own. 
And it really shouldn't do everything on its own. It's one of the, it's one of the beauties of the church is that we have the opportunity that where we can share resources, we can share ministries, we can lean on one another for leadership development. And, and so we ought to coordinate our efforts. It's one of the hallmarks of why we operate the way we operate. Then also, obviously, these last two, the identification of social needs. You have, just like I do, just like Ed and Scott do and everybody in this room, we all have pet projects in the ministry, things that are our favorites, things that we really like to do more than anything else. And so, and, and, we, and we trend that direction. And some of that is probably wired by God. It, it's the reason that he set us down into that community is because he needs your passions there. But it does not exclude the need for us to identify what are the social needs that are outside of our wheelhouse that are in the community that could be used as bridges of the gospel into pockets of our city that we wouldn't otherwise visit. And so not just identifying the social needs, but this last point is having actionable knowledge from the information. Ed, you said that um, a lot of what we do missiologically has to do with uh, the demographic, the sociological, and the spiritual. I find myself uh, caught up a lot of times in the demographic. I like the numbers. I like, you know, I'm, I'm a little bookish and nerdish that way that I like to understand all the numbers and all of the percentages and I like to be able to stand in front of the people that in the church that I also serve in Nashville where I'm one of the teaching pastors and be able to say, hey, did you know that, that there's this many thousands of this type of people in our community? Did you know that there's this many immigrants that moved in? Did you know that there was a pocket of this, you know, ethnic group over, you know, not far from our church building? I love knowing those demographics, but there is, I've got to be able to act on those demographics. I've got to be able to act on that knowledge. And so if you find yourself just building up stacks of reports on your desk or in your computer files or on Dropbox or in an Evernote folder somewhere, but you're not acting on any of it, then you're wasting your opportunity. And so it's not just a matter of, I know more about my city than any other pastor. I know more about my city than anybody else. It's how are you going to take that knowledge and then act upon it? Because like the general said, if you are not willing to change, you may not like change, but you're going to like irrelevancy even less. Scott McConnell is the uh, director of LifeWay Research, which means he's kind of the brains behind what we do. Ivy League educated, by the way, and uh, I like to drop that on people. He also has the distinction of being the only person on this platform who's actually shared a platform with Al Sharpton at a conference they spoke at together. We just think that's fascinating. Doesn't have anything that he's going to talk about today. Uh, but Scott is uh, the, the ch- a child of missionaries, just returned from New Zealand where his parents serve as missionaries, and, uh, and he is just a, a brilliant statistician and thinker. And when we do a city study, Scott has framed it. We're going to share some of what we've done. When we come back after Scott's talking, I'm going to talk about people groups. I'm going to talk some about people groups, and I'm going to talk about some practical next steps that you can take as a ministry. So, Scott, let me turn it over to you. Thank you. Frost and Hirsch, in their book, The Faith of Leap, talk about the command that we have to go. What they talk about is that sentness is an identity thing, not simply a geographic one. Because as God leads us in our journey spiritually, he very well may ask us to make a geographic move. My parents, when my father was called into ministry, we moved from Minneapolis to a missionary headquarters in, in, outside of Philadelphia. That was a big geographic move for our family. And so many of you are willing to make a geographic move. But once you're there, once you're in that place, you are still sent. 
And so the, the, the key that they, they bring out in this section of the book is, is that we are called to every arena, every context, and every domain of life. And that's where research can help us. Because each of us come into our city with a perspective. We come into our city uh, seeing the things that interest us. So if you're into cars, you notice which kind of cars people drive. If you really like food, you, you see the little diners and you see the little, the little dives of where people are eating. Each of us has a perspective, and the key is to understand each of the groups in that city, and, and research can definitely help with that. As we do research uh, in cities, as we do studies, one of the key things we want to find out first and foremost is where people stand with Jesus Christ. And so that, that's a question we, we need to ask. Uh, we also want to know what are their perceptions? What are the residents of that city? What are their perceptions of the church? Do they see the church as a, as a group that's helpful, or do they see the church as a group that's irrelevant? Do they, do they liken us because of our, our processes and that we stumble over each other? Do they liken us to organizations like the government? Or because we're constantly proclaiming, 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 do they liken us to the news media? We need to get inside their heads and understand their perceptions. We also, through research, are seeking to find out whether or not they see the good works that the church is doing. In 1 Peter 2.15, it says, For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Are they seeing any of that for your church or for the, the Christian churches in your community? And finally, we want to know how receptive they are to conversations about faith? How receptive are they to invitations to the church and to uh, different events that the church may, may put on where they have opportunities to share the gospel? While we learn those things about people's perspective, in research we have this ethical dilemma, and that is that when we survey somebody, we're obviously not surveying every person in a city, but as we survey a sampling of churches that statistically will give us a reliable picture of that, that, that city, it's anonymous. It's confidential. I'm not writing down their name. So when I'm talking to somebody and they're telling me they're lost, I need to find out something. And that is, how can I find people like you? And so the whole, we spend a major portion of our research, once we find out where people stand with Christ, their perceptions of the church, uh, we then spend a major portion of our research understanding how they identify themselves because that's how we're going to find them and that's how we can mobilize people to reach them. And so that's where understanding affinity groups comes in. Why is it important to understand affinity groups? In a word, urbanization. Urbanization provides incredible opportunities for the church today. God is bringing the nations to our urban centers. Every 31 seconds, there's a new immigrant in the United States. There are people at our doorsteps that used to be a month's journey to reach. There are great opportunities. But at the same time, there are great challenges with urbanization. And one of the keys is that the people in a city are strangers. Jane Jacobs, in her book, The Death and Life of, of Great American Cities, brings out that this is, this is actually a good thing in a city when citizens and strangers can be on the same street in safety. And so that characteristic of cities, that we don't know each other, means that we need some bridges to be able to reach people. And affinity groups are that. It's people's interests, people's hobbies. 
how they identify themselves. So we do ask within surveys what people's faith is, what their religious preference is. But honestly, that's, they usually answer with how they were born. I'm either left-handed or right-handed. I'm Baptist. I'm Jewish. I'm Hindu. It's, it's what they were born. So we have to go deeper. We have to get to their personal faith. We also ask a lot of demographic questions. But honestly, some of those, things like age and income and education, we don't see a lot of differences on, on, on how lost people are on those issues. Now, ethnically, we do see more because, again, a lot of that is the heritage of, of the, the religion they were handed. Um, it's also important for us to understand where these people are at most of the day. Where are they working? Now, we can't get down to individual jobs, but we can get into job groupings. And if your church understood that the, the greatest lost people in your city were healthcare workers or people in public education or government workers, you could take steps. You don't have to have any doctors in your church to show care and kindness to people in the healthcare profession, to be encouraging them. There are opportunities right around us. And when we find out where the needs are, where the pockets are within our cities, we can take action. We can also address some of the more fun types of affinity groups, sports, hobbies, outdoor activities, the arts. As we worked in Austin, uh, incredible arts communities. We actually asked people, do you consider yourself a member of the arts community? And it was one of the larger unreached groups within the city of Austin. Speaking of sports, uh, NFL camps are opening up. And uh, last week, the Denver Broncos, go Bronco Nation, Denver Broncos opened up their camp. Peyton Manning's big deal. He's in camp. But as, he, as he's interviewed in the first day of, of camp, obviously a great tragedy had happened just down the interstate in Aurora just a couple days before. And Tom Jackson interviews him and asks him, asks him about it. And he tells, he tells about some of the players reaching out to the families. And, and he says, I think our players understand you're playing for more than just the football fans. You're playing for the community. And at the end of that interview, Tom Jackson himself, an all-pro Denver Bronco, comments how much he appreciated what he said. And he wasn't talking about the football things later in the interview. He was talking about Peyton's perspective on football and on their team. And I think for each of us as leaders of churches, we're looking for people who haven't been sent just for fans of church. We've been sent for our community. We don't serve just fans of the church. We're here to serve the community. And we can do that by connecting, using those avenues like sports and outdoor activities and technology. Some of our methodology is that we work with groups of churches. There are definitely tools available for individual churches. There are, there's census data there's data on what radio stations people listen to in your city. There's good data for individual churches. But we find that, that in the same way churches can work well together to love a city, they can also work well together to know a city in a whole lot more detail. And we will work within a designated market area, or frankly, we can cut it up a different way. We can do your five-county area or, or however you can best define the city. And through phone interviews with residents, we can not only find out where they stand spiritually, but we also can, can find out about their affinity groups so we can describe those affinity groups. Now, the, the key to that is that it helps mobilize people. 
there's a, a business book that came out several years ago called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And, and the proposition of this book is that we need to stop thinking of the, and again, this is a business proposition, is we need to stop thinking of the poor as victims or a burden and start recognizing they, them as resilient and creative entrepreneurs. Well, sometimes I think we treat our, our membership as if they're victims. Were we releasing this week some, some data on discipleship that sharing Christ is the thing we struggle with most within the church today? And we almost treat our membership as if, as if it, it's, it's their fault or, or they can't do anything about that. And yet at the same time, they have great entrepreneurial abilities. They have great capacity to reach the lost. And affinity groups, showing them the bridges, saying, you already enjoy this, share Christ while you're doing it. That's the opportunity that, that studies like this offer. And... Uh, Appreciate the opportunity Thank to share you. about it. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Philip. You know, it's uh, it's important that when we when we look at the ops, the opportunities that we have for ministry and mission, we think in terms of. And I'm gonna close with this. By the way, just so you know, um, they extended the time to uh, 10:50. Uh, I guess yeah, 10:55. So we got a few more minutes left, and then uh, I might try to take a little question, few questions at the end if we get to the time. But I want to close with this. I want us to kind of think in terms of if we're going to know our mission context, we're going to think like missionaries. Now that's sort of become cliche in Southern Baptist life now. And that, again, 10, 20 years ago, that was controversial. Now it's cliche. I hate it when something moves in a decade from controversial to cliche. But now people say, we've got to know our community. We've got to know our mission context. The reality, however, is, is that most people have the aspiration to do that, but won't take the perspiration to actually live that. And there's a difference between the two. Part of it, for example, is unpacking your bags. If you're going to live in a place, you've got to love that place. Let me encourage you, maybe you should leave the sports team behind and begin to cheer for the one that's local. I know some of you are like, no, I'm out of here. I quit this conference right now. You know, roll tide. You don't live in Alabama anymore. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry. Um, if you're in Tennessee, you can root for the tide. Uh, it's still allowed. But, but my point is, is don't constantly emphasize your differences. Constantly, constantly emphasize your love for the community and let them see the differences in Christ. Okay, too, too often what happens is, is that we tend to live like the world, but look remarkably different. That's what most statistics tell us, right? Christians live like the world, but look remarkably different. What I want to say to you is that God's call for missionaries is to look similar, but to live radically different lives. Now, our focus here is how to know that context. So let me close with just some exhortations with four things I want you to get, right? If you're taking notes, jot these down. Number one, number one, I need you to know. I need you to know. Don't emphasize the fact that you're a stranger in a place. Be somebody who loves this place. For example, do you know that Erie, Pennsylvania has more bowling alleys per capita than any city in the United States? You didn't? I do. You know why? Because I planted a church there. And I learned to bowl. And I loved bowling until I drove out of that city and I have never bowled again since. But I loved bowling when I was there. I watched football. I was in Buffalo, New York five years. I watched football every Sunday possible. And those five years, the Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl four times. Just saying. I'm just saying four times. I am aware of the fact that we never actually won, but we went to the Super Bowl four times in five years. Why? Why? Because that's where God has placed me. I want to love, not, not the idols of the culture, but I want to know and I want to engage. Let, let, let me share with you some things that may help. For example, where I lived in Buffalo, I, I moved there right after 
the final repercussions of Bethlehem Steel closing struck. 70,000 people lost their jobs in a short amount of time. There was actually a, a billboard on the outside of the, the, uh, uh, of the, the sky, they call it the Skyway, going out of town. And it said, it was actually a billboard put up by the union and said, will the last worker out of western New York please turn off the lights? And, and I knew this was a, a broken community. And, I, and that's why people thought it's strange we go there. But why did we go there? Because we went there. But we had to know so that we could love. So the first thing I want you to get is to know. Now, now I want you to know that, that we've looked at affinity groups, and our research here that Scott talked about is, is going to be over the phone. We've done one, two, three. We've done research as many as 30 languages, but typically it's not that many, and so you don't get all the pockets of people groups. Part of knowing your city is to know all the ethno-linguistic people groups that God has put in your city, and that requires a different process. The IMB now has some helpful resources to partner with that as well. For example, where I live now in Nashville, there are more Kurds than any other place outside of the Middle East. And so there's an opportunity for us to engage there. We're actually right now teaching and leading our church to engage, uh, to engage Asian Indians who are present in our community. And that's going to be part of our partnership is to engage Asian Indians overseas as well. And so why? Because to know our city, we know it's ethno-linguistic people groups. We, you can jot these down if you're interested. We know it's ethno-linguistic people groups. We know it's history. We, 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 know, we know it's hurts and the, and, and the things that have brought it to where it is now. And we know it's hopes. And in the midst of all that, we, we know it so that we can love it. And this, this is tough. There are a lot of places that are really not lovable. I think a lot of pastors and church leaders, maybe like you and like me, they go to these conferences and they hear about these cool places and, you know, someone's planting a church in Manhattan. Oh, that's awesome. Or they're, or they're, you know, planting a church. I met a church planter from Myrtle Beach this week. And I'm like, oh, suffering for Jesus. You know, and, you know, and a little while yesterday, church planter here from Tampa. And, 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 and you're planting a church in Toledo. Well, you know, God loves Toledo too. Maybe not as much. But, I mean, God loves Toledo as well. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Can anything good come out of Toledo? Uh, that's a yes, yes. Klinger did from Mash, uh, but but the the but here's but here's the point I want you to see. I want you to see is that I've been to I've been to the undesirable cities. I grew up in a slum in, uh, in a, a slum, but in a bad neighborhood outside of New York City on Long Island. I planted in Buffalo, and when it was the fastest shrinking city in America, I planted in Erie, Pennsylvania. I know. But I can tell you, I have never loved the people like I have loved the people when God sent me to the people. And I want you to love people like that. So, yeah, we had, we had drive-by shooting two houses down from us. We were robbed on multiple occasions. But, but when, you, when you know and then you know the hurt and you know the love, then you, the love births in you. And so, so that leads to it. So no is number one. Number two is love. And really, you can lead your church to do this, right? I remember I was serving a church in Indiana where I was an interim pastor and then a teaching pastor at this church. And the church was 35 senior adults. The median age was 68 when I, when I came to serve there. 68 years of age was the median. They had a guy named Greg. He was 40. They called him the youth group. And, and our whole role was to... And this community, the church had moved, the people had moved away from their building. And so the first thing we did, one of the first things we just said, let's go door to door. Let's go meet the people. And there, it was a young, multicultural, lower middle class, working class environment that they, they, they didn't know, but they learned to love. We began to pray. We gathered together to pray. You want to teach your church to love people? Get them together praying for people. 
And then what happened is we began to engage. That's the third thing. Number one is no. Number two is love. Number three is proclaim. Uh, excuse me, is engage. And we engage them in a couple of ways because Jesus engaged people in a couple of ways. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus announces and inaugurates his public ministry by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he talks about the blind, the captive, the poor, the sick. And we know throughout scriptures, the widow and the orphan. And so Jesus came serving the hurting. What a great opportunity for us. Once we know a city and we begin to love a city, we can begin to serve a city. I spoke at a meeting not dissimilar to this of, of, uh, of some of the uh, evangelism leaders in, in our denomination. I hope you're appreciative of these evangelism leaders. They work hard. And I shared some of these ideas. It was funny because it got back to me that, that well, gosh, Ed is, Ed is suggesting now that we, that we do social works instead of the gospel. And I, and I said, no, no, I'm just suggesting that we actually kind of follow Jesus in the way he proclaimed the gospel. And that's a crazy idea. I know, I know. It's, you know and, but, but, again, but again, that makes people nervous. For some reason, rightfully so, because in the past, when people got excited about serving others, they got less excited about preaching Jesus. They got excited about justice. They forgot to proclaim Jesus. But I believe that if you really love Jesus, you're going to care about justice, and you're going to preach Jesus. And so when we serve, what am I saying? You're right here, aren't you? I appreciate your ministry, too. Uh, the, um, but, but when we serve others, we're joining Jesus on his mission. He came serving the hurting. We join him on his mission. But that's not the totality of Jesus' mission. If we're going to engage like Jesus, Jesus came serving the hurting. He also came, in Luke 19.10, he said, he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came serving the hurting and saving the lost. If we're going to engage our communities, we join Jesus on his mission of serving the hurting and saving the lost. We say, here I am, Lord, send me. Why? Because we know a city. Now we love a city. We know a city, its needs, its hurts, its areas of struggle, how to preach and present the gospel. We then love that city more deeply. By the way, teach your people about your community so they can love it more deeply, and then they can engage it more faithfully, which leads to... Fourth and finally, and I'll close with this. And you know what it means when a speaker says that, right? Nothing. Um, But number one, no. Number two, love. Number three, engage, where we serve and save. And number four is to proclaim. Is to proclaim. See, you say, well, isn't that under Jesus' mission to serve and save? Yeah, I think it does require an additional emphasis in these times. Here's why. Because we've really gotten bad at this. And, and, and i got to say, you know, and, and I recognize this, and I, I get to talk all, you know, I love being in an all-Southern Baptist gathering. And maybe some of you have slipped in like, you know, wolves among the sheep. But we're all, we're all Southern Baptists here, just like Jesus is. And um, so, <laughs> amen. Um, can I tell you, I, I, I've got, I, feel, I feel that we're maybe turning a corner, but I think we've got a ways to go. We already know the statistics. The statistics show that membership has peaked and is declining. Baptisms this year, it went up a little bit to the second lowest number of baptisms in a long time. Listen, that's not time to pop, pop the bottles or anything. Not that we would do that hypothetically, but let's say somebody did that. Um, it's not time for a celebration yet. It's time for us getting on our knees and saying, Jesus, help us love the lost like we once did. I've said many times, listen, this is important. If the 50s came back, our denomination is ready to go. I get that, or I've said that many times. I want you to hear this. If we could get the evangelistic passion of the 50s back, we'd make a huge difference in our context today. Say, hey, that's old school. We're talking about soul winning, be winning people to Jesus. If that's old school, we need to go back to school. And because at the end of the day, I think that, again, we, we Southern Baptists, I don't know about you, but Southern Baptists seem to love arguing about evangelism more than they actually love doing evangelism. 
And, and I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm ready for us to get refocused on that. Now, I do think that part of that is and will be is that we know, is that we love, it leads to engage, and then finally it leads to proclaim. So why, why are these things here? Why, why do we have these tools? Well, the reason we do research at LifeWay Research is simple. The people ask me all the time, what are you doing? I mean, what does LifeWay Research do? Why do we need this research? And I'm not offended by the question. Here's why. Because God has called you to be on mission where you are. We would not send a missionary to the Ebon in Malaysia and say, hey, listen, you love Jesus, take your English Bible, don't learn anything about the culture, just go, just go do it, see how it works out. Instead, we'd say, let's know the people. We have ethno-linguistic people group studies that are going on to help us understand what do they think, how do they understand. And right around us, in the last 30 years, North America has changed. Canada and the United States have gone through drastic cultural shifts. I want you not to, you don't have to be a missiologist. That's a unique discipline. I get that. But I want us all to think like missionaries. If you don't like that term because, you know, there's a form that says a missionary has to do a certain number of hours and have a certain number of training, and I'm fine with that. It's not in the Bible, so the word missionary is not in the Bible, as defined, not defined in the Bible. So here's what I would say. The term on mission has a long and wonderful history in Southern Baptist life. Avery Willis writes in his missiology textbook, he speaks about, has, you know, he defines missions this way, mission this way, the missio day, all this sort of stuff. But what he says is, what we all know, and he's recently been gone on to be with the Lord, what we all know is that we're all called to be on mission. Here's the problem. Again, there are 16 million, actually, even if we use the inflated membership numbers, there aren't even 16 million Southern Baptists anymore. There are 15.9 million Southern Baptists right now, even with the membership numbers. But who knows how many, really? We don't know. We just know. We report honestly what they report, but, but we don't know. But here's what we know. If those millions of Southern Baptists that you're the leaders of, that we're leaders within and among, if those Southern Baptists got a passion for evangelism, got a heart for church planting, got a focus on serving the hurting, and got a passion on God's global mission, the world... Remember what Acts said when the disciples came? These who have turned upside down the world have come here also. That's my prayer. So we want to give you tools, but tools are not goals. The goal is that the name and fame of Jesus will be more widely known. We want you to, to know, know a city so you can love a city, so you engage a city, so you can proclaim the gospel in that city. I've got a few minutes for questions, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up our time together. If you haven't raised your hand, you've got a question. I don't know if we have a mic to bring to you, but I was told to do some questions. And so just raise your hand. I'll repeat your question if you would like. Anyone raise your hand? Any questions? Yes, sir. Just go ahead. You have to speak loudly. We sure do. Um, we, if you'll go to, matter of fact, if you'll go to, if you'll go to edstetzer.com tomorrow, I'll put up an example of some surveys and some city studies that we've done. Just go to edstetzer.com. I'll put it up there. Uh, there's things you can do yourself. There's things LifeWay Research can help you do. I'll put it online tomorrow, edstetzer.com. Good. Somebody else? Yes, ma'am. Her question is, she has a lot of mental illness and drug abuse going on in their community. Go ahead. Yeah, they say, you know you have needs because they're financially not in a situation. How are we going to engage them? Yeah, I think you have to, her question is, how do you engage them? I think you have to mobilize a church to see that as part of their mission. And I think that's key. Both parts are key to that. So particularly if you're starting a church, you need to 
plant, reach people, mobilize a church that sees caring for the least of these, as Jesus uses the term, as central and fundamental to their kingdom call and to their church's mission. I think the best way a church is served is through a church that's serving its community. The best, best way a community is served is through a church that's serving its community. And I think, so I, I think you want to step into that knowing you're going to need partners. My, my wife is, by training and by experience, a special education school teacher. It's a remarkably draining endeavor, and you need a church that says, you know, 1 Peter chapter 4 says that those who serve serve in the strength God provides. They need to be walking in the power of the Spirit and in a community of people that are serving alongside with them. It's not easy. There are great resources that are out there. Charles and others have good resources that can help with that as well. Good. Thank you for coming. Uh, Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to serve you. We pray that you might glorify yourself, that your name and your fame would be more widely known, that we might love you, love your word, love the work of your spirit through our lives, love the hurting, and love the lost enough to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, be with this conference. Continue to be at work through what God is doing here. Provoke us to love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10.24 says. In Jesus' name we pray.